Our reading this morning is be continuing in Galatians, Paul's letter to the church in Galatians, Turkey and parts of Syria today, I think. Let me give thanks first and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, for calling him and revealing yourself to him, for his willingness to serve and go to these areas and to preach the Word of God. Jesus Christ is alive and is the Messiah and Lord. Help us to hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. <clears throat> then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up in response to a revelation. Then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false believers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. And from those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, what they actually were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. They saw that I had attributed nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he worked through Peter making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in the hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? The word of the Lord. Our text today uh, presents us with one of the most dramatic scenes in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul tells how he confronted the Apostle Peter, who's called Cephas here in, in verse 11, about the inconsistent way uh, he was living as a Christian in the city of Antioch, when he refused to eat uh, with the Gentile Christians out of his fear of this uh, circumcision faction uh, that had developed among some of the Jewish Christians. We're going we're gonna to come to the details 
of this in a moment, but it's worth pausing just to consider what an astonishing thing happens here. It's a good reminder uh, for us that uh, some of the messiness of church life, the, the kinds of conflicts and differences that come up in any real community, that all of that has been there from the beginning. Uh, Christianity, Christianity has never been about uh, a human ability to organize or to change the world on our own. It, it's always been about the grace of God working through weak, inconsistent, fragile people who have to work out their problems together. I served as a pastor in, in upstate New York. Uh, this was a, a sweet little church community in the, in the beautiful Hudson Valley, uh, full of the most committed and, and welcoming people. Uh, before moving there, Linda and I visited, and we toured the sanctuary and the rest of the church, and we, we worshiped there on a Sunday, and we didn't notice anything unusual. We just enjoyed learning about the church. Uh, and so we, we took the call, and we moved into the parsonage a few weeks later, and I was all ready uh, for my first uh, worship service on, on the Sunday, and I walked into the sanctuary, and on the platform, very prominently placed behind the pulpit, was a large American flag. It had not been there when we visited. <laughs> now, maybe some of you come from a church background where that would not be unusual, uh, but uh, for me, uh, it wasn't a part of my Christian experience, and uh, uh, it, was, it was a big surprise. Uh, it turned out that while this church had been without a pastor, there had been kind of a guerrilla warfare going on with the placement of the flag. Uh, and so uh, one Sunday, it'd be up here on the sanctuary, and then the next Sunday, uh, people would show up and it'd be in the back or out in the hallway. And it had just been kind of moving around. And uh, some of these differences about it were represented uh, in the church leadership. Two, two of my elders in this church were Vietnam veterans, and their lives have been profoundly shaped uh, by their, their service in the war. And I will always be grateful uh, for what I, I learned, especially from them and, and from others in this, in this church. And I, I, I won't tell you the whole story, uh, but as we talked about some of the issues that were going on in the church around this, you know, what's appropriate symbolically in, in Christian worship, uh, how do we think about our love for country and our love for God? Uh, one thing that was helpful in the, in the conversation is, is we committed to putting the gospel at the center of our discussions. We said, if we're going to be a diverse community, socially, politically, racially, then the one thing uh, that holds us together has to be the gospel of God's grace. Uh, I will say eventually the flag did come off the platform, uh, but what seemed most important was not that one side or the other won in this, but that we came away from the debate with a clearer vision of the truth of the gospel that we wanted to stand for, that we felt called to stand for uh, in our community. Well, this story came to mind because in our text today, in, in Galatians chapter 2, we see that even the New Testament church had to go through a similar experience. Uh, let, me, let me explain. First, let's consider the meeting in Jerusalem that Paul describes in verses 1 to 10. In this chapter, Paul is continuing to tell the story 
of his post-conversion life as an apostle proclaiming the gospel. And last week we saw in chapter 1 that initially he didn't go to the other apostles because he didn't really need to prove himself to anyone. He had met Jesus, and that was enough for him to proclaim. And for 14 years, Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And for 14 years, he ministered in a predominantly Gentile city in Antioch, uh, north of the Holy Land in Syria. But eventually, he does go to Jerusalem, and this time, he says, he shared his teaching with other leaders because a controversy had broken out in the church. He says in verse 4 that there was a faction of what he calls false believers who were insisting that Christians must adopt Jewish ritual practices in order to be saved. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we hear about this group. In Acts 15, uh, verse 1, for example, we read, uh, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So uh, th this is a part of the same movement. These teachers claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they believed Christians also needed to keep the Jewish law. In other words, they were saying that Gentile Christians needed to become Jewish in order to be saved. And in contrast, Paul insisted that the gospel was for people of all cultures and they could come to saving faith as they were. In this meeting that happened in Jerusalem, the key test was Paul's ministry co-worker, Titus. Paul went up to Jerusalem with two other people we hear at the beginning of this passage, Barnabas, who was Jewish, and Titus, who was Greek. And some commentators think that Paul uh, brought Titus with him in, intentionally in, in a, to, be, to be deliberately provocative uh, because of this controversy that he knew was ongoing. He wanted to see what they would say. Would Titus be required to be circumcised or not? And the result was clear. Paul says in verse 3, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This was a watershed moment in the history of the church. It made absolutely clear uh, what the church's teaching would be, that, that God's forgiveness and grace in Christ is a gift for all peoples. There are not two tiers of Christians, those who have taken a first step of faith and those who are super-Christians because of something they've done, as we heard earlier in our service in, in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. He, he emphasizes the, the allness of the gospel. There, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor, nor is there male and female. The, the all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, the, the true descendants of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. This is what Paul calls the truth of the gospel, and, and it's the message that totally transformed the social norms of the ancient world and the history of, of the world. Because if you believe that you are part of a community where you are judged not on the basis of your family 
or your social status or your career advancement or your sex, but that you are accepted and loved solely on the basis of what Christ has done for you on the cross. This changes how you look at everything. I recently heard the Roman historian Tom Holland tell the story of one of the early church martyrs, a woman named, named Blandina. Uh, she died in a Roman arena in Lyon, France in the second century, about 100 years after Paul uh, wrote the letter to the Galatians. And uh, as Blandina was put into the arena, uh, with her was her mistress and also several men. But Tom Holland made the point that the amazing thing here is that the only name that is remembered and passed down through history is the name of the slave girl, Blandina. Not her owner, uh, not the men who were with her, uh, but Blandina is the name that's remembered, the slave. In fact, we're told, and in the stories that are told about her death, uh, it's always said that she died resembling Christ on the cross. Not just that her name was remembered, but that she in some way represented Christ in that moment. What I think was happening in these stories and, and the point that was made is that if, if the gospel is true, then it meant that the suffering of a slave girl mattered as much as the noble woman who was beside her. The powerful stories that the church remembered and told, not just the, the stories of the rich and the powerful, how they witnessed to Christ or uh, the good that they did, but the stories of the weak and the poor who are blessed in God's kingdom. This is why Paul says in verse 10, they asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. For him, that was the culmination of his witness to the gospel. This brings us to the next scene in verses 11 to 14. After his time in Jerusalem, Paul returned to Antioch, which was mostly Gentile, but also included a Jewish community. And both Jews and Christians there in Antioch had, had come to faith in Christ. Cephas, who's the, the Apostle Peter, and, and Paul switches back and forth here, calling him by his Aramaic name Cephas and his, his Greek name Peter. But Cephas, Peter, had also come to Antioch and was participating in the life of the church. But when a group uh, from the circumcision faction in Jerusalem arrived, he stopped eating with the Gentiles. He would only participate in the meals, uh, maybe the, the Lord's Supper worship of the Jewish community, and not with the Gentiles who were also there. And this was because he felt some pressure from this faction to maintain his Jewish purity, his, his credentials, uh, to keep kosher, basically. It may seem surprising that, that Peter would be the one to do this because he also received a, a dramatic vision in Acts 10 with the sheet coming down and the, the clean and unclean animals on it that was meant to show that the, the kosher requirements 
uh, no longer applied uh, to the life of the church. But I think it, it shows that the, the pressure that he was, must have been under in Antioch uh, must have been enormous. He, he felt this pressure to please this circumcision faction. It also fits with Peter's personality, I think. You know, he's, after all, he's the one who, who swore to Jesus that he would never abandon him and then not long after denied him three times. You know, Peter was always very quick to speak and, and took a long time to learn. And I think in this way, he gives us an opportunity to learn with him how deep our need for God's grace goes. Notice verse 12. Uh, it says, Until certain people came from James, Cephas used and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. At this point, you know, Peter's been a Christian for a long time. He's a leader in the church. He's an apostle. But in this moment of stress and outside pressure, we discover that he's still in some way being driven by his fear. That's what it says. He drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. He probably knew what was right on some level, but there was a gap between what he knew, what he maybe believed and confessed with his mind, but there was a gap between that and what was happening in his heart. This shows us what uh, can be the case for all of us, no matter how long you may have been following Christ. It's not that there's some new stage of the Christian life that, that some people have attained and and some people haven't. That's what the, the circumcision faction offered, you know, kind of a, a three-step program for being a good Christian. There might be some pain involved, especially for the men, but on the other side, you could know that you were an insider now, someone who was truly committed. But the example of Peter shows us that the path of Christian growth is more subtle, uh, but also more real. It means not just looking at our outward actions, but at our motivations, our desires, and our fears. When we apply the gospel to our hearts, we discover uh, the ways uh, not just the ways that we might be overtly disobedient, which we have to deal with those things, but we also discover the ways in which our hearts, our, our, our desires and our fears are not in alignment with the truth that we are accepted and loved by grace. If the God of all history has given himself to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and united us to him forever by faith, then why would we be afraid of anyone or, or anything else? Why would we want anything else that is apart from him and his goodness? Next week, we're going to hear how Paul summarizes his own life in Christ uh, in verse 20 of this chapter. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In verse 14, uh, he says it a little bit differently. He says that Peter and those with him were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. In Greek, the word here that's used for acting consistently is the Greek word orthopodeo. It's a combination of two words. Ortho, which means straight, and podeo, which means to walk. So literally, we could translate what Paul is saying as uh, they were not walking straight in the truth of the gospel. It shows us that while, while orthodoxy is important, or, you know, right teaching about the gospel, it also must be accompanied by orthopraxy, you know, right acting that is in line with the gospel, that flows from the gospel. If you say you believe the gospel, but you don't act in accordance with it in how you treat others, then it hasn't really worked its way deeply into your heart. In his book, The Color of Compromise, the historian and advocate for racial justice, uh, Jamar Tisby, uh, talks about this scene uh, that we're looking at today where Peter separates himself from people who were ethnically different from him. And, and Tisby notes the, the fear of Peter that prevented him from being courageous uh, in response uh, to those who were compromising the truth of the gospel. Uh, Tisby notes that there are two kinds of fear that we might have today that would prevent us from being courageous in our witness to the gospel, especially when it comes to racism. First, uh, Tisby says, is the fear of other people. Uh, he writes this, I am convinced that a fear of other people, what they will say, think, and do if we stand against racism, holds the church back from more aggressive action to bring about justice. Indifference certainly plays a role, apathy has its part, but when confronted with a choice to oppose racism or to acquiesce to business as usual, people of God too often shrink back. And this goes for Christians of all colors, he says. Even minorities fear causing too much of a stir over racism for fear they will lose their job, money, status, or opportunities. And with good reason, fear affects us all people in this area. Tisby is right to call out our fear of other people in this area and how it can control us so we are unwilling to take a stand when it really matters. Uh, like in Antioch, uh, there are many different factions at work in our world, and we need the power of the gospel to speak with clarity and conviction about what a Christian commitment to racial justice should look like, and we need to do that together. But Tisby also calls out a, a second type of fear, he says this is the fear of getting it wrong. As we do take, step forward, take uh, steps forward in faith. And about this he writes, uh, we worry that we do not know enough yet, that our good intentions may have unintended negative consequences, or that the very people we seek to serve will rebuke us for our ignorance or missteps. I cannot say this will not happen. Uh, standing for racial justice involves risk. But effective advocacy is a skill just like any other, and skills can be learned. Ultimately, though, you cannot read your way, listen your way, or watch your way into skillful advocacy. 
At some point, you must act. Go forth, not in fear, but in faith, that even your mistakes will increase your capacity to disrupt racism. I think these are good words for us to reflect on uh, in this moment in the life of our church. Uh, you know uh, that we're planning uh, this worship picnic on, on Sunday, May 28th at, at Rennebaum Park uh, with the two churches that we, we host here in this building, uh, Casa de Dios, uh, which is led by Pastor Miguel Meza, and uh, Central Cristiano, which is led by uh, Pastor Francisco Luna. And, and these are both Spanish-speaking, mostly immigrant communities that are very different from our majority culture uh, here at Geneva. And since we moved in here, our relationship with them has been developing organically. A number of you have had the opportunity to connect with them in different ways. And, that, and the, the idea that our, our council embraced was that bringing these three churches together to worship on a Sunday is a way that we can express our unity in Christ and simply grow together in relationship as brothers and sisters. But as we do uh, this, uh, as Jamar Tisby described, it's natural that you may have some worry or anxiety about this idea. Uh, we've just moved in here and gotten used to, to gathering in this space, and now we're asking you to meet at a park somewhere else on a Sunday. But as a church community, I know that we feel called uh, to this kind of work, not just to talk about fighting racism, but to walk straight in line with the truth of the gospel. And this is one opportunity that the Lord has given us of doing that uh, together. So I just want to encourage us to be, to be praying for this and uh, to be uh, pursuing it together. Let me just make one last closing point about this, about why we do this. Uh, and uh, sometimes in reading the letters of Paul, we can forget that it was the ministry of Jesus, the inspiration for everything uh, that the New Testament church did. And one thing that Jesus was known for more than anything else was eating with people in ways that crossed boundaries. Uh, the Pharisees would grumble at Jesus and his disciples. When people complain about what you're doing, you know you've, you've gotten a reputation for it. And the Pharisees would, would complain, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Eating and drinking with people who were deemed to be on the margins was a way of embodying the message that Jesus came to preach, the message of God's grace and his forgiving love. His forgiveness was not something that needed to be earned, but was something to be received by faith as a gift. In his letter to the Romans, Paul commanded Christians, saying, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Notice what he says here. He doesn't say, welcome one another as Christ welcomed people. That would be moralism, because it's only about seeing Jesus as an example to follow. 
But what Paul says is, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's when you, friends, he has welcomed you. When you know that you are welcomed by grace, that you are already accepted in the deepest possible way, then you can welcome others from the heart. Your welcome uh, won't depend on your affinity with others socially because you know that your heart is the same as anyone else's. You'll, able, you'll be able to be culturally flexible and generous because you know what Jesus was willing to go through in order to be united with you. If you believe that he was willing to give his life for you, then you won't hold back from sacrifice to show his love to others. This is what we celebrate every week uh, around this table. He welcomes you to come and to eat and drink with him, not because of what you've done for him, but because of what he's done for you. And as we are united to him by grace through faith, we are united to each other and we're united to God's church in every time and every place. We all become members of the same body, the body of Christ. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder of the gospel, and we pray that you would help us to remember it every day and every moment, uh, that it would sink deeper into our hearts, uh, that we would see uh, the fears and the pride uh, that still is resistant to it in, in all sorts of ways, uh, but that by your grace, that those things would be exposed, that we might repent and believe and uh, live more deeply uh, in line with the, the truth of your love and your grace. Uh, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.